the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to show you a world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Well, here we are on the Magical Mystery Tour, and my guest this morning, again, is Rick Halterman, the famous author of (laughs) Curriculum of the Soul, at least famous around here. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much. Although fame is not anything I would really ultimately be after, (laughs) Tony. So tell me, Tonio, I, I certainly don't want to take over anything, but please there's a do. part of, please part do. of sitting on the edge of my seat here wondering, because I know you had mentioned with your previous interview last week with the woman who had done the angel experiment, that you were doing your own angel experiment, and I was curious how that had turned out. Well, I was following her thing. The first part of the book is, writing, is her writing about angels, and then the second part of the book is this 21-day, what she calls, angel experiment, which are essentially are these invocations of, of these archangels. And the energies, these archangels are, are like archetypes of, of energy, of certain types of energies. You could call them divine energies maybe, I don't know, words, once again, can be quite a minefield. Um, Archetypal energies that we can tap into, that we can invoke, that we can embody, that we can call upon when we either want those energies or feel like we need them. And these energies include, I don't have the book with me, but they include things like courage and 
um, God, my mind is, is kind of blank. I just did day 18 this morning. Mm-hmm. So I have three more days to go in it. And for me, these are like meditations where, where you invoke these, I think they're 12 archangels. Mm-hmm. And don't ask me to list them all because I won't remember all of them. Yeah, yeah. But um, they all embody or represent certain archetypal energies that we can, we can experience and tap into that are actually part of what's available to all of us from the inside. But they're, they're like here to remind us and to give us permission to access them or, or to act as, as a kind of a portal to access something that's, that's already always available to us but that we have probably long since forgotten about or maybe never were aware of. So would these have any kind of parallel to, you know, there's that first section in my book that talks about the tools we're all, we're all given, like courage, like silence, like solitude, like joy, desire, things like that. Does it have any parallel to that? Absolutely. Oh, how interesting. Absolutely. And... Each one of these days represents one of these archetypal energies like courage and joy and love. Um, I wish I had the book with me, and I wish I had a list of the different energies, but these are all empowering energies, um, the kind of things that we, we want to cultivate, that we want to experience and share with others and experience with others, as well as within ourselves. This is so interesting because I was just having a conversation with a friend last night about this idea of spiritual technologies, and it's something that I, I'm kind of always keeping my eyes open for in terms of new, like when we spoke about Ho'oponopono a number of weeks back, to me that's a very potent spiritual technology that, that anyone can use anytime. And then I was thinking of the ones that may be starting to fall behind, like at the gym where I go and I, I swim laps there's a guy who's always putting up these these little things on, on the bulletin board about repentance and we're all sinners and we're all doomed and da 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 and I, and I think from my perspective that's kind of an old maybe outmoded spiritual technology, the idea of repentance because it has a real heavy piece of judgment in there You know, I wouldn't call that a spiritual technology I would call that the misunderstanding and dregs of what was once a spiritual technology. And I think you're being more accurate about it than I am. I think that's quite, quite true. So here we're back to this idea of the angels, which is really very interesting, because I think you know, before we used to rely on exclusively religions to come up with these sort of spiritual technologies for us and, and, and sort of pave our way, and now here we have lay people that are not necessarily you know, religious, certainly spiritual, and coming up with alternative technologies that are quite useful. Yeah, and from my experience of reading these books and talking with these people is that they're all, they're all receiving this information from a place of, of great need, personal need, where their lives have been extremely challenged or have collapsed or, or completely fallen apart, and they needed so much 
assistance that they received it in a very powerful and perhaps novel or or new way and it's such a wonderful gift when they they share it with the rest of us it's beautiful you know her story reminded me somewhat of byron katie's story of you know in essence hitting rock bottom you know through addiction through all these things and then these other energies started showing up and you know there is that that interesting little turning point in there that it just gets me curious as far as so what was it that you know were they were they in this place of hope were they in this place of just complete despair so that through the absolute surrender of whatever was happening in their lives that this this new thing showed up well i don't think there's any hope in there i think it's when we get to the point where there is zero hope where you're in the deepest darkest depths of of the proverbial dark night of the soul where you have nothing left but to surrender and and in a sense give up all hope yes yes and and, and I, that's beautiful because i was thinking you know, there was something i was just reading about recently tonya which had to do with my own mystery school in the book that is really talking about their practices and one thing that i had forgotten about was this idea that if we can show up say 10% that God will provide the other 90%. And meaning showing up 10% could be this very idea that you just mentioned that by having losing all hope and really becoming that fully present in a certain kind of despair that God will show up in whatever form, in this case for this particular woman, in terms of giving the gift of having the angels to help out through these situations. Mm-hmm. And I would talk about that in, in a slightly different way. Like, I would think showing up would be, like, we could think of ourselves as like a grain of sand in the greater universe of all that is, mm-hmm. and that we are completely part of, enveloped, embraced, and an integral part of all that is. And whatever we need, particularly at a moment when we've let go of all of our own concerted attempts to figure out what we need and how to fulfill it ourselves from our own tiny microscopic perspective, that that's when we allow in the infinite wisdom and power of the universe and all that is to assist us. That's beautiful. This, this was very similar to what I was just reading last night, that and this, this goes back to the Ho'oponopono, when Dr. Hugh Len talks about these three aspects of ourselves. There's the conscious self, there's the basic self, and there's the high self. And the high self will never really interfere with what's going on with the conscious and the basic self, the basic self having to do that, that survival part of us and the, and the part that gets attached to its beliefs and all that kind of stuff. But... When the conscious and the basic self get to that place of desperation and, and, in essence, are asking for a certain kind of help to show up, even though they have no idea what that may be, then the high self says, now I can come in and do what I can. Yes, we have to invite it in. We have to allow the space. It's like that old um, story of the, the student going to the teacher and 
the teacher pouring the cup of tea and, and pouring more and more until the cup is overflowing and the student goes, stop, stop, stop. Because when our cup is full, there's no room for anything else. Right. And most of our ego is pretty much full of itself all the time. <laughs> all the time. That's a great way of saying it. All the time. All the yeah. time. Thinks it, it's got everything figured out. It, it believes that whatever it's perceiving about the world around us and about ourselves is absolutely true. And that is essentially having our cup completely full to the brim with no room for anything else. Mm -hmm. That's a great way of describing it. I really love that. That's good. So I was wondering, how did you come to all of this? I mean, you alluded to some very difficult, challenging, and and painful experiences in your life. And my experience is, is that's usually the catalyst that brings us to the point of change, of opening ourselves to change, to real, substantial, meaningful, life-shifting, universe-shifting change. Because when our lives change, our whole perception and experience of the universe around us completely changes as well. Yeah. And for me, it was, I think, a, a similar, ver just another version of what you're talking about. It was a dark night of the soul. It was the end of a relationship years ago. And I had ended up in Hawaii. I was the original plan was to go to Hawaii with that particular partner, but things were falling apart. She said no, she didn't want to go, and I knew that there was a certain kind of healing aspect, because I've been to Hawaii many times, of going back over there. So we gave it a try, but this was a pretty tough time, Tonio, in which I was, like, say, one night getting no sleep at all, because all this processing was happening inside of me. The next night would be one or two hours. So there I was on the big island of Hawaii, and there was one day in particular where I said, you know, I really want to go see lava flowing. And so uh, that particular night, I didn't have any sleep, but I got in the car and started, you know, driving up to Volcano. And, you know, there's this, this long 3,000-foot vertical road that uh, slowly gets you up there, and as you get higher and higher, there are more and more clouds. And as I was driving up... I don't know if you know of Gorecki's Symphony Number no. 3, which I had on a CD with me, and I was playing in the car because it's an astonishing piece of music, but it's a symphony of sorrowful song, and it's really heavy-duty. You know, it has to do with a prayer that was written on a, you know, a Nazi prison wall by a prisoner. There's a bunch of elements that all have to do with really about as deep and as difficult as it can get. And I'm listening to this symphony. I'm driving up. The clouds are coming down. I didn't have any sleep. My hands are on the wheel. And all of a sudden, this whole sensation came over my body, which is like, oh, this is the very beginning of the path of how one starts to contemplate suicide. And I could feel it. That was the thing. It wasn't a mental thing of like, oh, well, you know, I'm in despair. I'm going to commit suicide. It was like, oh, this is it. And... And immediately the first thought that came to my mind was I couldn't possibly do it to my then, uh, I think he was 19 years old, my son. I was like, I couldn't possibly have him live with that, the idea that his father had committed suicide. So immediately turned off the music, rolled down all the windows in the car, and let this fresh air come in. I was like, oh, God, 
this is really rough. And, and I said, well, I, the only plan I have right now is still to go see the, the lava there in the National Park. So I kept going, you know, got in through the entryway, drive, and, and there's a long road, which is called the Chain of Craters Road, that takes one back down to sea level. So clouds start disappearing, get there, and, and the road comes to an end from due to a previous lava flow. So you have to stop right there, and then you get to walk out. And there were signs that basically said, beware, uh, <laughs> about a two-mile walk, and I get out there, and, and unseen, you can see heat rising off of the fresh lava. And the thing that's interesting, at night if you go, it's really quite beautiful, because you can see the orange of the new lava uh, you know, right there in front of you or around you. And, and during the day, what happens is air temperature cools it off just enough so that there's kind of a silver-gray color to the lava. So you can't really tell with the new lava if it's brand new and still, you know, at, what, 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit, or if it's, in fact, a few days old and it's really quite easy to walk on. So as I'm walking out, I'm seeing heat rising, you know, in certain places around me. I'm going, oh, this is great. I'm getting close. And then I finally get to a place where I can actually see this new lava starting to flow on down and going, oh, this is so wonderful, because this is really the birth of Earth, to see that happening. And I ended up in a little indentation that is, I don't know, about the size of this living area where I'm standing in, so not really huge, but big enough. And as I get into the middle of this little indentation, I'm standing there, and I'm seeing this lava flowing. And then I look around and going, oh, my God, I think I'm getting surrounded by lava. And, and there was an instant kind of panic that took place. I mean, first, it's already a tough day. I hadn't had any sleep. I had this whole thing about suicide showing up, and now I'm, like, getting, getting surrounded by lava, and, I'm, and there was some part of me that got grounded pretty quickly, like, you know, Rick, you better get this together. And so I, I stood there, and I started looking at all the places where heat was rising, and I saw a spot, I don't know, maybe about four or five feet from where I was standing, and it, it had that silver-gray color, but I didn't see any heat rising off of it. And this is just a little, like, square foot thing. And I was like, okay, leap of faith, and I took that jump. Like, I'm going to do this as I'm talking to you on the phone. <laughs> you know, jumped over to it, and thank God it was cool. So it was solid. Then I had to do this another two or three times, and when I, when I made it out of there, Tonio, I was, I was in tears, and I'm like, oh, God, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. And I knew that here was like this wild day. Two times I'm facing this prospect of something quite serious happening to me, you know, whether I'm even going to make it still to that empty end of the day. And I, there was some part of me inside that said, you know, Rick, it's time to do some real work here because clearly whatever I had been doing prior to that time wasn't enough, it wasn't working out, and I really had to dig in. So that was the turning point. And then at that point, it was everything from workshops with do like Dr. Hugh Len, going to mystery school, reading all kinds of things about abandonment, about codependence, and spending a lot of time in nature, and just really slowly but surely getting together. You know, I, I did a program once a week. I was seeing my doctor of oriental medicine, going to therapy once a week. I was doing everything I possibly could 
in order to take care of myself and to get healthy again. And so I learned, you know, a bunch of tools in the process that happened to work for me. I don't know if they work for other people, but they work for me. And this is eventually what, uh, what evolved into the book. You know, part of this had to do with this whole practice through you know, the person who taught mystery school. We learned this practice of noetic balancing and, and the idea of, you know, you, you essentially track out people's core issues inside and then through the use of self-forgiveness, go ahead and get rid of those, those particular core beliefs that do not come from love. You know, I forgive myself for believing I'm unlovable, forgive myself for believing that I'm not worthy. Or, you know, and it can get really quite idiosyncratic with, you know, depending on the client, uh, you know, depending, you know, like there was one guy that I had actually not too long ago, and, you know, one of his core beliefs was I forgive myself for believing I will always be a victim. So in the course of all these balancings, I really started to learn, like, oh, this is so fascinating. Look how we wire ourselves. Look how the very thing you were talking about earlier, Tonio, how the ego takes on its ident- identity through these beliefs and really wants to fully inhabit all those beliefs so that we're so full we can't really allow anything else to come in. And in that process, I started learning, like, oh, so I guess I'm in exactly the same boat as everybody else, and what can, what can I maybe bring to the table to remind people, just like in the, in the book you were reading about angels, to remind people we do, in fact, have tools. We have things that we can use to help us get through this craziness called being alive. Now that's reminding me that one of the invocations is about forgiveness and that forgiveness is an incredibly important and powerful tool in that that seems to be one of the most important tools in our own personal healing and as you described as a way of dissolving old belief patterns that, that uh, keep us trapped in old old patterns of behavior and old patterns of experiencing our, ourselves and our relationship to the world around us, including the people in our lives. Yes. And, and like we had talked before, particularly when it came to Ho'oponopono, the Hawaiians were quite shrewd when it came to this idea of self-forgiveness. Because I think there's a tendency out in the world right now that, that people know that from, say, a spiritual point of view, oh, yes, I should forgive, and it always tends, like our world tends to operate, in terms of how do I forgive the other, and there's this shrewdness of like, well, actually, the self-forgiveness can be equally employed. I mean, I think the outside forgiveness is still a valuable tool, but the self-forgiveness is something that we can literally use any time without even anybody being aware of it. It's just this constant process of investigation, seeing what's going on inside and going, oh, so what's that little thing doing in there? And where does that come from? And, how, and why did I react that way? And we can go ahead and use that, and poof, as soon as we start changing that, then there, again, the higher self will start realigning and maybe, for instance, bring in angels to whatever to assist in this process of moving us to wherever the next place may be. Yes, Self-forgiveness is, is the key, and that's what the Archangels were talking about. It's self-forgiveness. Outer forgiveness comes naturally after we 
truly and deeply forgive ourselves. You know, outer forgiveness becomes obvious once we we learn to truly forgive ourselves. Did you read, there's Colin Tipping's book called uh, Radical Forgiveness? No, I'm, I don't think I've even heard of that before. Well, this was one of, the, one of those many books that I read during that process I was telling you about. And I won't tell you the whole story, but there's a certain story that happens. And the point that he makes in the book is that when the person can go ahead and clean up their end of you know, their participation in this particular story, that the story itself will, in fact, change on its own volition because we've done that work inside. To me, that describes what's happening with the Ho'oponopono work. Yes. And that's, that's the essence of, of all of this. I mean, that's exactly what, what our work is, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's what I've learned about all of this, and, and that's what hits me like a two-by-four over the head. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is, I don't know if they taught you this in, in your particular mystery school, but this was certainly a big theme in mine, which was basically this idea that if we realign it inside, the world will, in fact, go ahead and realign itself accordingly. Oh, absolutely. That's yeah. a huge thing, because, you know, there's that great quote I was thinking, because I've been playing with this idea of, of hope this week, and there's that quote by Krishnamurti, and I have that somewhere in the book, and the quote is basically, war is a spectacular and bloody reflection of our everyday lives. And his point is that if we really are interested in peace, we need to go inside and reconcile those places that are at war within so that it does not get energetically projected out onto the world. Right, and... That is so applicable to where we are today in the world, where we have people who are so passionate and committed to social justice and world peace, and yet are finding ourselves and themselves caught in this kind of battle against what's happening in the world, you know, in the political realm, like against people like Donald Trump and, and people that are surrounding him and supporting him and all of the lies and deception that's being perpetrated and the outrage that people are experiencing, the kind of outrage that feels like we can't stand for this, we can't abide by this, we can't allow this to stand, we have to stand up and fight against it. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting time, and of course there are lots of views to, to get in there, but... I love, there's, a, there's someone who teaches with a movement of spiritual inner awareness named John Morton, and he has this great quote which says, peace is the cessation of againstness. Yes. And there we're back into that idea, and I, I think this is, uh, this is where I have challenges sometimes with certain activism going on, that the, the tendency is always to go, we have to go outside to figure out some version of justice. It's always outside, and my feeling is that, of course, you know, I'm delighted these people are doing this work, but I think there's a certain component in there that people who have not figured out how to create the justice first inside, whatever that might be, so that when they do go outside, it's going to be really effective. 
well, creating peace inside, I'm not sure what justice would look like inside. What, what do you think justice would look like inside? Well, that would be, for instance, going in and me going after those false beliefs and forgiving myself for those. This would be really kind of cleaning up all those things. Could you give an example that relates to what we're facing today? Yeah, yeah. In the so, world? for instance, like, and I think we talked about this in a previous conversation, and, and this had to do with my own upbringing, my father always, you know, doing the stern father thing, which is what we have kind of going on with our government right now, the stern father that wants to really be more of a monarch than, than a negotiator or a nurturer. So with the stern father, I ended up with a reaction, a part of me, and I really didn't get very conscious of it until only recently, that I would have to feel a need to really speak up quite loudly when I had to defend myself in any circumstance out here in the world because I had this belief in there I will never be heard because I was, in essence, treating the world as my father. So there I would be going out there railing against the world, for instance, as if the world was my father. And when I pulled that belief out, I forgive myself for believing that I have to rail against the world as if it was my father. Then all of a sudden things softened, and I didn't have so much of that againstness. I pulled that energy out of it, in other words, and then now it can, the whole thing can soften, and I can perhaps even be more effective through the softness. But let's say it's something that, that's actually continuing to happen and even get worse or appear to get worse in the outer world around us, mm-hmm. like, for example our current political situation in this country. Yeah. So what you mean, what, what do we do at that point? Yeah, how do we find justice within ourself around that? Well, I think there's certain, you know, remember that quote we talked about a number of weeks back, which was to understand everything is to forgive everything. This was not to forgive horrible behavior, you know, inappropriate behavior. But I think understanding that the thing that I love about this moment is that here, the actual experiment of democracy is being put to a test. And this is really great news as far as, so, I don't know whether will it'll endure or not, but I love the fact that there are people out there that are simply standing up for this idea of democracy and saying, this is what we have, have chosen as an experiment. We have all chosen to live by it, at least most of us. And we want to see this experiment survive. We love the idea of a government that has checks and balances, because it really has worked and has certainly gone through its difficult moments in the past, but it has worked for a couple hundred years. Let's see if we can keep getting it to work. So now we're into this very interesting place, you know, about hope and all these other things, and I, I tend to go after it from this, this direction of what is the training I have to keep doing internally and in my own life? Could be externally, like going and exercising my body, feeding myself good food, all these other things, so that when these struggles come about, you know, I'm fully ready to do whatever I can to lend a hand. So, in a recent email that you sent me a couple of days ago, it sounded like you felt like you were struggling with this issue of hope and how to 
come to terms with it in a in a bigger way yeah in fact it was actually only during the meditation prior to talking to you right now that i was able to finally get a certain amount of discernment because you know there's there's this sort of elementary view of how like how people think of god and the divine you know that god is going to come in and for instance you know, send lightning bolts down during the impeachment hearings or something like that. That, to me, is really kind of a first-grade view of God. That's not how God works. And, and when I thought about hope in particular, and I thought there's that sort of elementary view, which is like, well, I will hope for, you know, the million-dollar, winning the million-dollar lottery, which really has to do with, in, in essence, selfishness is what that comes down to. And, the, and then when I started... Somehow this came up in the meditation, Tonya, where I thought about Byron Katie's idea, which I adore. That there are three kinds of business. There's your business, there's my business, and there's God's business. And when hope is strictly about my business, well, I'm not sure how effective that really can be because that really falls into that place of wishful thinking. And then, of course, when the wishful thinking doesn't manifest, then we fall into despair. Now, on the other hand, if we're hoping into the terrain of God's business, and not that I can get into God's business, but I love this sort of the Buddhist practice, may, you know, like, like may there be the best outcome, may that person be in peace, may that person heal, may whatever, that's where I can start putting a certain amount of, and I don't know if I want to call it hope exactly, but it's where it's, when it becomes communal, it becomes another terrain altogether because it's no longer getting selfish although i think particularly when it comes to politics there can be you know, we all have our our own points of view and there's some people that feel very strongly that whoever is in charge is doing a good job and other people that don't feel so strongly i do think we are at a precarious moment not only in terms of democracy but also in terms of the planet itself and the environment that what are we going to do to step up at this moment and so, of course, I hope for the best possible outcome. You know, if I think of God's business and, and wonder if I could possibly have that kind of imagination that, you know, that from the perspective of the planet itself, I think the planet would just really, in essence, shrug whether we are still here as a species or not and will do just fine without us, to tell you the truth. As far as democracy... Now we're getting into a whole other thing. So, Lexi, if I can read a poem, this is one that I found from, for my show coming up this week. And this has to do with Northern Ireland, speaking of hope, speaking of politics and all that. And this is from a chairman of the Peace and, I guess, the oldest Peace and Reconciliation Committee, who also, he happens to be a poet. His name is Patrick Otama, and the name of the poem is called Shaking Hands. And this may be, you know, this may very much apply to what's happening to, to here in our own country. But anyhow, here's the poem, Shaking Hands. Because what's the alternative? Because of courage. Because of loved ones lost. Because no more. Because it's a small thing. Shaking hands, it happens every day. Because I heard of one man whose hands haven't stopped shaking since a market day in Oma, because it takes a second to say hate, but it takes longer, much longer to be a great leader, much, much longer. 
because shared space without human touching doesn't amount to much because it's easier to speak to your own than to hold the hand of someone whose side has been previously described, proscribed, denied. Because it is tough, because it is tough. Because it is meant to be tough. And this is the stuff of memory, the stuff of hope, the stuff of gesture and meaning and leading. Because it has taken so, so long. Because it, it has taken land and money and languages and barrels and barrels of blood. Because lives have been lost. Because lives have been taken. Because to be bereaved is to be troubled by grief. Because more than two troubled peoples live here. Because I know a woman whose hand hasn't, hasn't been shaken since she was a man. Because shaking a hand is only part of the start. Because I know a woman whose touch calmed a man whose heart was breaking. Because privilege is not to be taken lightly. Because this just might be good. Because who said that this would be easy? Because some people love what you stand for. And for some, if you can, they can. Because solitary means a common hand. Because a hand is only a hand, so hang on to it. So join your much-discussed hands. We need this for one small second. So touch, so lead. So what do you think of that? I was just going to ask you that. <laughs> well, to me it's very powerful, because here, you know, in their case, there has been this incredibly violent past and people's lives have been lost. Right now, we're just talking about a form of government here in America, but these people have really, you know, they've lost loved ones. And they're, you know, and he's really talking about a certain kind of reconciliation that through that violence, it's like, well, what are the choice do we have? The violence clearly hasn't worked out. We have to really start touching each other in a certain way to actually shake each other's hands, find a whole new way. And this is... This is like, remember when you were talking about in our last conversation, the importance of imagination, one of those incredible tools to imagine having instead of this, you know, the, 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 the againstness, the right-doing, wrong-doing mentality, which is what pervades our culture right now, to have the imagination to say, okay, Jim Jordan, let's go out to lunch and talk. Rehumanizing. Re using yeah. our, our imagination to rehumanize each other. Yes, exactly. So I can find out. You know, I had a talk with a guy a couple of months ago here in town, and I didn't know. He had heard me talk in the hot tub, you know, where I swim the laps. And, and, uh, and he said, let's go out and have a cup of coffee. So I did. It turned out he was a very staunch, uh, you know, Donald Trump supporter. And the thing that was interesting about this conversation, we really didn't talk about Donald Trump per se. We really were finding common ground. And it was fascinating to me because the common ground was far more pervasive than the areas where we didn't necessarily agree, particularly when it came to policy and things like that. You know, he really believed there was a certain kind of integrity that he believed in, you know, and people that earned their money instead of given money, you know, things like that. And it was really quite lovely because there was a certain friendship that had gotten created where we could talk across what would appear to be battle lines when, in fact, the battle lines never existed at all. 
Yes. I've experienced so many times when, when perceived difference or conflict is actually based on a total misunderstanding or misreading or misimagining of what we think we heard or understood about somebody else. Yes, yes. And of course, what's, I think, challenging in our, our time is that there's a whole mechanism, a whole machine out there that is going to amplify whatever viewpoint. And people tend to, particularly if they're not curious, want to just simply listen to that one viewpoint over and over again, and it just reinforces, you know, those old sort of battle lines. And that's where, you know, it's like when you had sent me that link for the film Sahadi, and it was really so fascinating to see that perspective, which was saying, well, how do we step outside of the matrix of this very thing I'm talking about, all those reinforced battle lines, all those reinforced points of view, and step out of that so that we can find our own freedom? Then we can still participate in the matrix, but knowing that it is the matrix, that we don't just go through our, our lives in a default mode and saying, well, this is just how it is. This is just how it is. Republicans and Democrats will always hate each other. Like, well, I'm not sure that that's really true at all. I think there are people that really do try and talk across the aisle and say, can we come up with a bipartisan solution on whatever this issue may be? Right, a bigger solution. Not, it's like going back to that Byron Katie thing that you talked about, my business or my will versus your business or your will or in relation to divine will or, or something mm-hmm. like that. It reminded me of that Buddhist prayer that you had mentioned. In, in our school, we had our own variation, which I think I mentioned before, which is instead of saying, you know, wishing that all human beings are, or all sentient beings are free of suffering, the prayer is we would offer it to the common evolution. For me, the common evolution is, is like in alignment with what one could call divine will. Yes, what God wants. God, that, that's God's business. And I do like the idea that, you know, like me having the humility to say, like, for instance, I have a neighbor who's going through a serious bout of cancer. He may not survive. And, you know, there's, of course, there's a Ho'oponopono tool, which is tiny, tiny drop pill, which is, you know, to use towards cancer. But it's like, may he not be suffering? You know, and I'm basically turning it over to God at that point and saying, God, it's your will, not mine, but at least I can entreat that will and see whatever, you know, whatever it decides in terms of what might be the best outcome. Because as I know, and this is kind of, I don't know if it's not a, a very common view or not, but, you know, for some people, death may be the healing. Oh, yeah, because absolutely. They can't do it here on this side for whatever reason. Right, and not only for healing, but that may be the way of our common evolution. I mean, we all die, and we have no idea when or why we will die in the broader scheme of things. And I just, (laughs) I keep getting my hackles come up with the whole personal notion of God, the way we use in our language. We're always using these pronouns like God as an individual personal object and that's why I, I definitely 
can resonate with the term divine much more because divine is, is a much broader term. There's no personality in it. There's no... Um, yes, no baggage at all. I know what you mean, Tonio, because I think this is back to that sort of elementary thing I was referring to earlier. People really would like to think of God as some kind of energy, some kind of power that will throw lightning at whatever that individual person doesn't like. Or as a father, as, as yeah. an authority figure, an and actual tangible or, or tangible in the imaginary sense, you know, a, a childlike use of imagination to create some dominant, omniscient, omnipowerful presence that we can just sit back and, and give our lives over to in some irresponsible way, as opposed to aligning ourselves. Yeah, with. in fact, you know, we had this interesting exercise that Robert, Robert Waterman had us do in our mystery school, where he had us write down what attributes that we thought we had individually in relation to our concept of God. And then he wanted us to write down what attributes we had that we thought in terms of our parents and their parenting. And the thing that was so fascinating about this exercise was that more often than not, the very, the very thought that someone had, whether their parents were authoritarian or nurturing or whatever, happened to be the very attributes they gave to their concept of God. So yes. at the end of this <laughs> exercise, he, he then said, now's your chance, I want you to go ahead and let's take away the whole parental component of how you decided this, and now you create what you think that your God would really want to represent in terms of, you know, now for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So that's such an interesting thing. And also, you know, one of the things that impacted me, I didn't put this in the book, but there's a lovely Stephen Levine idea. Stephen Levine, who, you know, was, who passed away only in the last few years, he lived actually out here near Taos, but he was a, a big Buddhist practitioner, and he said in one of his talks, he said, our concept of God would be like one grain of sand on, you know, say, a 50-mile-long beach. That's how, that's how small it is in relation to what the actual energy represents. Yes. Exactly. And I think that's, that's probably more accurate, that I don't have a clue, and this is where this great mystery comes in, and I keep kind of alluding to that in the book, you know, in my book, which is like, how do we get comfortable with this mystery, and how can we entreat the mystery to perhaps help, or how do we somehow, I like this idea even the best, it's like the Ho'oponopono idea, how can I keep cleaning up my part, keep doing that 10%, so that this other 90% or whatever percentage it may be can then go ahead and do whatever its role is. Because I love, you know, this again, the mystery school idea from, from Robert Waterman was like, the universe is based on unconditional love. And if I, for instance, go out in the universe with my anger in activism, the universe will respond accordingly, like what's happening, say, in Iraq or in Hong Kong right now with more violence more anger versus if I can go out and you know say going out and saying so what will it be like like you know like when you were doing that I remember when you had done that in one of our earlier conversations and you imagine like you were put you're you're paying the loving forward in essence 
how then, as an experiment, will the universe respond? And it always responds in kind. So that's where the work is. To me, you know, I'd done a show a few weeks back, which was like, the work is the training. We keep training all the time, whether it's through our meditation, our practices, things like that, so that when the things show up, whatever craziness, there's a certain resilience there, and that we're still in line with how these things work. And getting back to how these things work and bringing it to the divine, to me, the most important thing I can come up with about the divine is, is to do everything we can to allow the divine to remain an infinite mystery and an infinite realm of possibility and not do anything to limit that because that is what I think is the actual creation of limitation. We create limitation. We have that power of imagination, the power of the mind to create limitation where there is none. That's beautiful what you just said, Tonio. I mean, I can't, I can't say it any better. You, you said it beautifully because I can only add to that, which is the limitations are the beliefs, the false beliefs that we come up with, and that is what restricts I mean, basically, it clouds the lens of our view of, of how we go out in the world. And when we can keep cleaning all of those, those things, those little beliefs, those judgments, all those things that we hold inside, then we have much greater access to the higher self, which is, in essence, those pieces of divine that can really reveal this whole other mystery of being alive. That's where grace shows up. Mm-hmm. And grace and divine energies like that only show up when we allow there to be the space for them to show up. And they will only show up to the degree that we allow space for it to be yeah. within our, our space. Yeah. So yeah. if we can, if we can find some way to allow the divine to remain an infinite mystery, an infinite realm of possibility all the more power to us. Yes. In alignment with that divine. Yes, because like you were saying earlier, that that sort of elementary idea of God, and God is basically going to be the energy that will fulfill whatever personal agenda I have. Like, well, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of mystery there, because all you're doing is just wanting amplification of your particular agenda. Right. We're getting stuck in our own business. Yes. And with an attachment that that's the only business there is. Yes. Superimposing yes. our business, not only on other people's business, which we do all the time, yes. but, but also upon the divine, upon the world, upon all that is. Yeah. So, so I guess, you know, like back to this idea of, say, what's happening in Washington at the moment you know, and I'm not going to talk about my agenda because that's really just me, and that's something I get to play with. But like, so what is God's God's business in relation to all of this? That's to me where it gets interesting, and that's the part where I want to be open enough to feel into that and to see, of course, how things are happening. And you know, it maybe you know, there's a part where the God's business is like, hey, I'm hands off on this one. You guys can sort this one out because I have much more important business as far as helping the Rohingya, 
you know, over there in Asia or helping but, with but a God fire does, going on in Australia or something But God like does that. not help anybody out in any way in those material ways. We invoke what we determine we need for ourselves, and God can't interfere with our will. I think that's that's one of the, the lessons that I think we have to realize about all of this, and that's why our own, you know, forgiving ourselves is so incredibly important because forgiving ourselves opens up that space for the for the infinite manifestation of the divine. Yep. Yes, I think you're quite right, Antonio. I'm reading, right now, I'm reading another wonderful book that I'm going to be doing an interview for in a few days. And this person talks about how the way the divine works in relation to the world there's no separation between the divine and the world that we're living in so when we think of our world as being dysfunctional or in chaos or or being something that's wrong or bad or or not working right it's a fundamental lack of understanding once again it's a kind of superimposition of our business upon the world's business upon the universe's business, upon the business of all that is. And he says that what's happening is actually all for the common good, for the greater evolution of what's happening, and that we're all, we're calling this forth collectively, even though most of us are completely unconscious of this. Mm -hmm. And at the conscious level, we're still calling forth a lot of this, but from the individual level, we have much less power to influence things, and that's why there's such chaos at this level, and we're caught up in that chaos, including the way we think about it, and most critically, the way we feel about it, and the way it affects us emotionally. Yeah, and, and I think this is speaking to Carl Jung's idea of the collective unconscious. And so, for instance, with, say, Donald Trump getting elected as president, there is, you know, it is a reflection of where our country may have been at that moment in 2016 in terms of believing certain ideas, believing certain things. And he's just a manifestation rather than... You know, I think a lot of people would say, well, he's the problem. Once we get rid of him, the problem will go away. It's like, well, no, we still have, you know, these, all these other things that support. There's still plenty of people that support certain ideas, like the idea of an authoritarian leader is going to lead us out of trouble because the political system doesn't work, those kinds of ideas. Exactly, exactly. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. I'm talking with Rick Halterman, author of Curriculum of the Soul. And what you just said is so beautiful, and it reminds me of an article that Vera de Chalambert wrote immediately following Trump's election, where she was basically saying the exact same thing. And her, her article was titled, Kali Takes America. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and it's a brilliant... I'll send it to you. Yeah, I'd love to see it. It's also, for people who are listening, it's, it's very easy to find online by just Googling, Kali Takes America. And it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And I've actually played a couple of talks of Vera de Chalambert on the show 
you know, over the past few years. Um, the notion that the dark energies that are festering in our collective subconscious were emerging fully to the surface and taking hold of the great American scene. And we are living in the midst of it right now. Yeah, and I, I think this speaks to what Carl Jung would talk about. If those energies aren't dealt with, you know, the unconscious, that if that isn't dealt with, there's a certain point where the unconscious is going to break into the conscious world because, that, you know, there's just too much. It's like and it does if it I have all the too time. much of a shadow hanging out behind me, those things will erupt, whether it's going to be in my dreams or in my day-to-day life. And it happens all the time to all of us. Yes. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when, because yeah. that's what our lives are. Our lives, because most of us are predominantly unconscious of what's going on inside of ourselves, those things that, that are lurking, that are unresolved in our unconscious or our subconscious, the only way they get our attention in order for us to consciously work on them and be aware that they need to be worked on is for them to it literally erupt into our outer world, which is where our consciousness is, as opposed to being able to bring our consciousness down to the subterranean levels, like making that mythical journey into the underworld where we get to work on that realm of our, our being and experience yeah, and you know, and even to put it into a, a very sort of an easy kind of metaphor, like do you remember the film Super Size Me, uh, in which you know the director went into that experiment of eating exclusively McDonald's food for thirty days, and yeah. and you know I think it was around the twentieth day in there he went to his internist who said if you keep doing this you will be dead in another two weeks, <laughs> and so there was. There's that example of you just keep doing a certain behavior until at a certain point the body is going to say, no, you know, we'll either check out or you know, you're going to have to change. So there's, we're back to that idea of responsibility. We used to teach us there's a homeless shelter here for troubled kids. We teach it to these kids all the time. You have to learn about consequences for your actions. And we have to do that work to resolve issues at the subconscious level and of the collective unconscious and it all has to be done by each individual yes we can't rely on anybody else to do it for us and nobody else's work is going to take the place of our own work upon ourselves no and and you're you're exactly right in that sense tonio that that until i can get these reconciliations happening inside that i can go meet who knows, it might be a Trump supporter, for instance. We can have a real conversation of, so what is it that's making your life tick? And what's really important for you? What yes. is it that gives your life value? Mm-hmm. And we may or may not agree on that, but I really do think there's a commonality to all of our experiences on this planet, whether it has to do with suffering, whether it has to do with joy, whether it has to do with connection, things like that. These, this is the common ground for us to meet then we can have conversations built upon that. And I think what's happened, unfortunately, at this point in time, at least in our culture, in our country, is that there's been a loss of trust between sides. And that trust somehow, and I don't know, you know, I don't know how this works. You know, it's like the end of a relationship. 
does does the trust get restored enough so that when you see that person in the grocery store, your ex-partner, that it's going to be a big charge you're going to feel, or is it going to be like, how are you doing, and are things working out? Well, that depends on the work that we do inside of ourselves. And you quoted Carl Jung as saying that that thing where somebody asked Carl Jung if there was any hope for the world, and, and his response was only if everyone does their inner work. Enough, actually, he said, if enough people. Okay. Yeah, and I think that that is all it really takes is that, and I don't know, I think physics had talked about what I think was 100,000 people out of a population of a million. Maybe it's only 10,000. I can't remember the it's, figures. I think it's 10% is, is the critical yeah. mass, yeah. Yes, so that's enough to tip it. And, and if we can just get enough people to do that, because then that becomes, particularly if you consider that if the other 90% are still, in essence, unconscious, that the conscious ones doing their work is going to be enough to, in fact, create the new energy that the unconscious people will, of course, be attracted towards, rather than just repeating the same old thing. Yeah, I wish I understood how that works, so that I, we weren't just talking about some kind of nebulous... Yeah, I know. Just Notion. Some idea. <laughs> yeah. It could be like, for instance, you doing your radio show and certain ideas, like, say, the idea that when you were exploring the idea of angels last week, somebody who would not be aware of that whole concept, then all of a sudden that can, whether they, you know, actively read the book, actively do the 21-day experiment, anything like that, all of a sudden consciousness has just expanded and you've just added, you know, that, that classic idea in Buddhism of planting the mustard seed, and then that seed, that's enough to go ahead and start evolving, because it seems to me once somebody has been exposed to an experience, you just can't immediately, you just can't throw it out of your field and say, I didn't see that, I didn't hear that, I have no idea that that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a cascading effect. I'm, yeah. I'm not totally sure that that, that explains, because you said that physics talks about the dynamics of critical mass and what it takes and I'm not sure that the cascade effect explains that or or is a direct correlation but I'm not sure if it isn't either so well and, and you know here I don't know I'm not trying to sort of explain it away in the sense of just turn it over to the mystery and this is a feeling I can't really think about this too much Tonio for me it's a feeling that when I start getting a little foothold in something, that foothold can then start turning into a platform, which can then start turning into a mesa, which can start turning into a whole new worldview. Yes. And I know, for instance, back to that story I was telling you earlier, when I was in full despair, surrounded by lava, already had suicide knocking at the back door, I had no foothold, and then I had to create a new one. And as soon as I started, just those little pieces, and, and you certainly see a lot of those little pieces in the book, that once that foothold started do, you know, doing its thing, I really couldn't go back. In fact, I even remember, Tonio, there's a dear friend, we were walking out on the mesa behind my house once, and we were talking about previous relationships, and I was talking about my own tendencies towards codependence, and I was telling her, I said, you know, I really miss those days on a certain level, because there was something utterly predictable about it, and, and there was a comfort zone and all that. And I said, but here's the hard reality. There's no way I could possibly go back. Right. It's like you would be going back with your eyes open. Yes. 
and it would just be unpalatable. Exactly, exactly. So I think that as we, as we bring these whatever ideas, our work forward, and it's like we had talked about before, that the embodiment of whatever it is that I might do and whatever it is that you're doing, because you, know, you certainly hear it with your excitement and your conversations with the people that you have on your show, that there is a certain embodiment there that energetically is going to have an impact for those who are listening. And I hear this from numerous people, including the person that I'm reading right now and I'm going to interview, and I, I sense it from my own direct experience that we don't have to have a direct outer connective effect on the world around us, that it happens from inside just as powerfully as it does through the outer world through the manifestation that we can see or, or perhaps we can't see. Like, for example, on the radio, I can't see who is being affected, who's listening, and who is being affected by what's happening here. Whereas on the inner level, there's no, you know, even physics talks about there being no, or that time and space are phenomenological illusions. Mm-hmm. And that, there's no sp- no distance that vibration travels well it doesn't travel it it resonates across dimension yes so that yeah, in fact you know i'd mentioned that email that i sent to you yesterday I'll, I'll just tell this quick little story when robert waterman was working with a client once and this was about a gal who had been sequestered in her room as a child and it was really quite despairing for her so he did this exercise, this is like 20 years later, and said, let's do a meditation. And he had her go inside. When he got her to a certain place, he said, now I want you to go back to that room, and I want you to comfort yourself as a younger person, which is what they did. They came out of the meditation, and the woman looks at Robert with this kind of wild look of astonishment. She said, you know, when I was a kid, I remember being stuck in that room and there was a point an angel came to me and eased my despair. And she said, I realized that was what I just did right now. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, so this is the very thing you were talking about, that it really can go through time and space, forward, backward in time, that we can have an influence, just like, for instance, our changing our beliefs, going after the false beliefs. We can change this is not going to change, for instance, all the circumstances that have led up to where I am necessarily in this particular life. But I have changed my whole view about my parents, for instance, and a whole view about my childhood compared to the view that I had at 12 years old. And now I have really a wonderful view of my childhood. And I still see, I think, accurately the difficulties and the challenges and also what my parents did and didn't have to offer. But I don't have to spend my time blaming them anymore. Yes, and from an even bigger perspective of all that, we can see ourselves in relation to all that is of infinite potentiality, that everything that we experience and everything that we see, perceive, and experience as manifest are all aspects of ourself throughout time, even. Yes. That there's actually no separation between us and anything else, that just like in that story that you told of, of the woman traveling back in time to find out that 
an angel was there to comfort her. There's no separation between who she is and who she was traveling back in time to visit herself and the angel that she experienced as a child and as the angel that she heard about being experienced by the child from her perspective of traveling back to remember that. Yeah, so this kind of opens up the whole game, doesn't it? Yes. (laughs) Back to allowing the divine as being an infinite mystery that we can't even begin to conceive of in exactly the way that you described it as us having the perspective of a grain of sand trying to perceive all that is. Yes. So I think the best we can do is we can play in the field. We play in the field of the divine and see, you know, like to me there's always like playing with it and then going out the very next day and saying, so how does it work out? Does it not work out? And the world is always going to give us feedback, instantaneous feedback with whatever we're doing in our lives. So that's what's so lovely is, is how present the world is to whatever we're doing, even though we may not be all that fully present, but it will give me the feedback of, oh, Rick, you know, it's not quite working out today, or it really seems to be working out today. Huh, that's interesting. What did I do? <laughs> how, how can I make this keep working? Or, like, do I need to shift something? How do I re-navigate if things keep hitting a wall, for instance? Like when I kept hitting the wall of codependence, and always constantly going after women that appear to be uh, emotionally unavailable. I don't know if that's who they really are, but that seemed to be who I was choosing in my life. With a certain point after hitting that wall enough times, I was like, oh, so what if I decide to change my choices? What if I decide to get rid of that belief of, oh, I must be attracted to a woman who was like what I thought my mother was growing up, even though that wasn't true. You know, it must be an emotionally unavailable woman. Then... Who, then who, let's see who shows up now. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting, and I love playing in this field because it's like, oh, where will it go today? Yes, and another slight turn on that is not only do we attract someone else who fulfills what we have left unresolved inside of ourselves, but I think that we actually invoke that behavior in those people in ways that may not even come totally naturally to them. And they may even, on reflection, wonder, why, why did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> Is that like, remember that line in the Talking Heads song about once in a lifetime? You, know, you may find yourself with a beautiful wife in a beautiful house, and you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack, and you may ask yourself, how did I get here? Yep. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's that very same thing, and you're quite right. I love that idea that we may be invoking that very behavior through our own sort of unconscious intentionality. Exactly, exactly. And this is where it gets really tricky, because I know that, like here, there there was a big group of people, and I think there still is a number of people in Taos that are still wild about the law of attraction, and I keep trying to point out to those people that I do believe the law of attraction is, in fact, working But if you think that you have a handle on this vast well of your unconscious as far as what that is really calling into you, well, I'm going to say, well, you know, teach me all about that because I don't know anybody on the planet who has. That the unconscious is what's probably more running the show than our conscious. Right. 
you know, like I knew one of those people here in Taos that had, you know, a printed out, you know, a, a facsimile of a million dollar bill that they kept, and they kept looking at every day, and nothing ever happened. And I'm like, well, big surprise, you know, that that you can work towards a million dollars. I think that's okay. You may win the lottery, although the actually I think the actual statistic is you're more likely to get struck by lightning than to win a lottery. Mm-hmm. So there's that option too. It seems to me that because I do know somebody here in town that's been struck by lightning, totally changed their life. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 what I meant by it's the difference between the will of a grain of sand and the will of all that is. Yeah, because you know when I sometimes you know there, there are a number of versions of I think of this idea of God. You know, that I think of this energy out there that is somehow conscious of. Literally, every thought, every feeling, every action is taking place on this planet and has conscious of that, been conscious of that forever. That's because it is that. It is all of that. If we can even come close to that, I just don't see how that's possible. Well, I think as the, as a, even from the perspective of a grain of sand, if we can just allow ourselves to be completely open and empty of an individual set of information, you know, a, a sense of what is and will that opens us to the infinite. And I think we can feel the quality of the infinite. And I think this speaks to when you had mentioned in, in previous talks, Tonyo, this idea of having the open heart, mm-hmm. that openness to allow whatever this, this thing is that's taking place, this mystery to take place, so that we can allow it. You know, there's, I'm going to read you a very short poem by Juan Ramon Jimenez called Oceans. And it's very short. It says, I have a feeling that my boat has struck down there in the depths against a great thing, and nothing happens. Nothing. Silence. Waves. Nothing happens? Or has everything happened, and we are standing now quietly in the new life? Exactly. It's, it's right there that, because that I think there is our conscious, you know, the literal mind, which is like, oh, I want all this movement, and I want, you know, this, I want that. There's all that hope stuff going on again, when, in fact, all the movement's taking place all the time. And to what extent do we want to be open to those deeper currents that are really allowing the movement to take place? And also the dynamic of awareness that our conscious mind can only be aware of of roughly 10 to 40 bits of information at any point in time, whereas the unconscious is aware of everything. Yeah, or like, and I think they have, I don't know how they measured this, Tonya, when they said that, like you just mentioned, the left side of the brain is doing, you know, the 10 to whatever, you know, pieces of information a second. The right side of the brain, it's closer to about like 10 to 15 million pieces of information a second. Mm-hmm. Within the sphere of, of our experience. But through presence, through the, the experience of direct presence and feeling into all that is, to the energetic sense of all that is, we can, in a sense, we are transcending dimensional limitations. I agree. And that's where, for instance, practices like meditation can get you to that place. I love, like... With, with Robert Waterman and, and the mystery school that I happen to attend. He says meditation is one of the most direct ways to keep in contact 
with this larger energy called God. Meditation can help us get to that place of presence. Yeah. Sometimes it can actually hinder us because we can get actually really caught up in a kind of push-pull relationship with meditation, the feeling that, oh, I'm miserable sitting here doing nothing and (laughs) and I'm trying to get to this place of of no thought and, and my mind is just running and telling me about how miserable I am and how I'm a total failure at this or I'm, or I'm just <laughs> overall I'm just miserable being here and nothing's working yeah yeah, Those... yeah, yeah. And, you know and you're reminding me of that old spiritual joke which you probably already know I even mentioned it in the book which was you know what did the Zen monk say to the hot dog vendor Zen monk says make me one with everything and then then the second part of the joke which is an as well known which is the monk hands a hot dog vendor you know like a ten dollar bill hot dog vendor, you know, gives him the, the hot dog, and then nothing happens, and, and the Zen monk says, where's my change? And the vendor says to him, you of all people should know that change comes from the inside. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of sums a lot of what we're talking about today, which is like, well, we all want to be one with everything, but if we really want that, we got to keep doing this work inside to make that happen. Yes. Indeed. Tonio, it just always feels like the blink of an eye when I talk to you. Yes, it's amazing how quickly time flies. And as always, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. It's incredible. I look, so look forward to whenever we have these things, because it doesn't happen that often in my life, so it's just so special, and I can only thank you for being who you are. And I hope that uh, people out there listening enjoy it as well. I hope so, too. I hope there are pieces for somebody, and you know, there's always, you know, check out, keep listening to Tonio and, and his show, and then if you like, you can check out my book and, and see whatever that has to offer you. I think there are pieces everywhere for everybody. You've got to decide what resonates with your own soul. So why don't you give your, your website? Sure. It's, uh, it's curriculumofthesoul.com, and in fact, these very talks that you and I have been doing, they are all linked there on the home page of that and also it can tell you how to to go ahead and get a copy of the book if that's something that you're interested in and it gives you you know shows you the outline there's even the the preface of the book is on the site even i even just for fun this would be like a total tonio epstein kind of exercise i made a film list of all films that would parallel the actual chapters in the book as well as a soundtrack that would parallel the chapters just for fun and and maybe you know the idea is that everybody has their own version their own soundtrack of their life and how would that apply in the context of wherever it is your soul is wanting to go mm-hmm. well rick halterman thank you so much and we'll be in touch and we'll do this again thank you so much love talking to you you too bye-bye bye and that's it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening until next time have a wonderful week